Hey there, welcome to another episode of Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank, your host. This week, we're going to be talking to filmmakers and actors, Natalie Morales and Mark Duplass, about their latest film, Language Lessons, which was recorded almost entirely via webcam during the pandemic. And yet the, the film is still very emotionally impactful, as opposed to the regular Zoom meetings that we're all trapped in all the time these days. Uh, we're also going to be chatting with James Whiteside. He's a principal dancer with American Ballet Theater, as well as a pop star. He's also a drag queen, and he's got a memoir out called Center Center, which he's going to tell us about. Then we're going to be hearing some new music from legendary singer-songwriter Dar Williams. It's going to be quite a show, which you are not going to want to miss. So don't go anywhere because it all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going well. Excited to uh, do the show this week. But first, of course, I have to ask if you're ready to play a little round of Mystery City. I'm nervous, but I'm ready. <laughs> you take this very seriously, which I appreciate. I like being asked questions and I like doing a good job. <laughs> well, I think since we instituted this a few weeks ago, I feel like you're batting a thousand. So uh, this city is a college town and it is home of the fighting Leathernecks. <gasps> I know this. I know this. It's it's a it's in Illinois. It's a, it's yes. one of the colleges in Illinois. Oh, it's ah. Uh... How about this? Like if you know, I didn't I didn't bring a brush, but at least I've got the other thing that I use for fixing my hair. A comb. My my my, my comb. Macomb. 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 Oh, I was not going to get Illinois, that right. <laughs> home of Tri-States Public Radio, where we are on Saturdays at 9 a.m. That's right. The answer is Macomb, Illinois. I can't believe how close you got to that one, though. Fighting Leathernecks. You well, the reason that. that I know is I love weird mascots because my father and mother both went to Presbyterian College in Clinton, <laughs> South Carolina, and their mascot is the Blue Hose. So <laughs> every time I hear like a, a really interesting mascot, I, uh -huh. I try to remember. You were very close. You were in Western Illinois, which I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to give you a win on that one. Hey. hey, you ready to do our radio show? Let's do it. All right. Take it away. 
from PRX, it's Livewire. This week, filmmakers and actors Natalie Morales and Mark Duplass. I love making movies like that because what you might lose in preparation, um, you gain in spontaneity and that spirit of fun. Plus, ballet dancer James Whiteside. I'd love to create new stories in classical ballet centering on queerness. With music by singer-songwriter Dar Williams. See how it feels, gather up that language, see what rhymes. <laughs> I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in this week. We have a really fun show in store for you. Lots and lots to get to, including our listener question, which this week we asked, if you could snap your fingers and be instantly gifted at one skill, what would it be? We're going to hear the listener responses to that question coming up in just a few minutes. First, though, we got to kick things off with the best news we heard all week. This is our little reminder at the top of the show that there is good news going on in the world. Elena, what's the best news that you heard all week? Okay, starts out with bad news, turns into good news. All right. One of my favorite singer-songwriters, vocalists of all time is a woman that I have idolized since I was a child, and that is Ms. Anita Baker, the oh, yeah. pride of Detroit, Michigan. Giving you the best that I got. She, I mean, she just, I think Sweet Love is perfectly recorded, perfectly sung. Nobody sounds like her. I've, I've just loved her my whole life. And about six months ago, she tweeted out that her record company, the the sort of statute of the contract of her masters was over. 30 years had passed from her first like four or five albums and she wanted her masters back. And it turned out that she was going to have to fight to get them back. And so she tweeted to her billions of followers, please stop streaming my music until I own it. Wow. You know, she, she wrote Sweet Love. Like she wrote, like she's, it, these songs are hers in many, many ways, both mm-hmm. as a performer and, and as a writer for a lot of the songs. And this past week, uh, it was announced that we can listen to Anita Baker songs again because she got her master's back. <laughs> so were you, um, were you uh, abiding by her wishes that you not stream any Anita Baker music? Like, did you find yourself going, oh, I should listen to some Anita Baker. And then you're like, wait, no, I can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I you know, I, I was really struck by the request and I, I really mm-hmm. wanted to take her seriously. Uh, and I, I, you know, I'm not the type of person who necessarily likes being told what to do, but I did sort <laughs> of like hold off. I sort of sang the songs to myself, which probably wasn't <laughs> helpful for anyone. But I have to tell you about her announcement, the announcement right. that she made when she got the master's back. It was on Twitter. It's a photo of her first five albums, including my favorite, Rapture. And they're all on a bearskin rug in front of a (laughs) fireplace. And she says, impossible things happen. All my children are coming home. Oh, that's nice. That's how, like, Anita Baker sounds like that to me, like a bearskin rug and a fire and just her perfect voice, so. That is awesome. In this uh, day and age where there are so many artists who have somehow kind of lost the rights to their stuff or there's so much complexity around how we get media delivered. It's nice to know that Anita Baker has her babies back home on that bearskin rug. Yeah, super well-deserved. The story that I noticed this week is very far from home. It's actually in space. (laughs) So they're up there on the International Space Station and the the French astronaut, whose name is uh, Thomas Pasquet, Mm. he likes to post, he's apparently kind of a foodie, 
So his thing from up there on the International Space Station is posting a lot of videos of what he eats on Instagram. Oh, cool. Which is kind of hilarious to me because that's what my boring friends do on Earth on Instagram. (laughs) You know, like, I'm good for it too every once in a while. You know, you get that, you get a meal and you're so excited about it that for some reason Mm -hmm. we now all have this instinct to want to just take a picture of it. Yeah, or a cocktail. Here, look at how perfect this was. Well, they're doing it in space as well. They had a pizza party the other night in the space station. So all of the astronauts, this is there's this video on Instagram this guy put up. All the astronauts are making pizzas in space, (laughs) and they're all putting their various toppings they've chosen on them, and then they cook the pizzas in some, I assume, space-age oven. You know, when you say space-age oven in this context, it's like not an exaggeration. Yeah. And then they're like having their pizza. What I was struck by, though, I don't know why this delighted me so much, but like, you know, wouldn't you think the food that they're eating at the space station would all be in some kind of futuristic Tupperware that like NASA or other space organizations had sort of designed and cleared for being something you can have and, you know, with no gravity, et cetera? Some kind of Jetsons polymer. No. I swear, there's just like a bag of salad. They've got some like tomato sauce that's in like a normal ketchup bottle. Like maybe it's from some other country. They've got a bunch of like cheese, like shredded up cheese that's in a Ziploc bag. This looks like me cooking in college. (laughs) I don't understand. Does the shredded cheese like fly around in the microgravity? Well, it's in a Ziploc. And then what you do is you put it on your pizza and then you cover your pizza with foil to hold it all together. And then you cook it and then you take it out. And now it's all kind of cooked into the same thing. But (laughs) I was just struck at how freshman year at (laughs) University of Washington, the ingredient situation is on the International Space Station. Like I just assumed that they were just wearing like foil outfits and taking things out of little containers, like in uh, 2001, a space odyssey. But it seems very down home. They seem like they're having a great time up there. It's munchies food. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if they can bring that up into space, the thing that would give you the munchies, but the fact that they're having fun up there is the best news that I heard all week. This is Livewire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. Let's welcome our first guest on over to the show. He is a principal dancer with American Ballet Theater. He's a recording artist. He's also a member of the New York City-based drag posse, The Dairy Queens. His first book, Center Center, a funny, sexy, sad, almost memoir about a boy in ballet is out now, and it is quite the read. James Whiteside, welcome to Livewire. Woohoo! Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, this book was a really fun read. If you read one book about ballet this year, if you're a person like me who doesn't have a lot of experience with the genre, I would say this is the book, Center, Center. You start off talking about how you were kind of interested in dance as a kid, but you're like 12 years old and you're kind of like really into Janet Jackson sort of rhythm nation <laughs> stuff. And then what your dance teachers take you to see the American Ballet Theater. And like, what was that experience like for you? Yeah, it was an incredibly inspiring experience. I was 12 years old and they brought me into New York City to see ABT at Lincoln Center. And it was my first time to Lincoln Center and it was, the show was incredible. It was a a gala performance, which is structured like a greatest hits show. So it's like, you know, the best of Don Quixote and Swan Lake and Sleeping Beauty and Romeo and Juliet. I mean, truly a greatest hits show. And I was blown away. It was unbelievable. And pretty much from that moment on, I thought to myself, I got to get on that stage. 
one of the things I was surprised to read in the book was that it didn't all go super great for you right away. Like, uh, you know, you were, you're in this a ABT summer program, but also like, you're not progressing like some of your, your classmates and friends. And then you were like applying to an art school in North Carolina and they're like, thanks, but no thanks. Like it didn't start, like you weren't just hitting it out of the park right away. Did you get demoralized? I think ballet gives you a lot of tools in life. And one is dealing with disappointment. There's a lot of letdowns in, in classical ballet. It's like, you know how, you know, maybe an office worker is up for a promotion every two years. Mm -hmm. Well, we're up for, for a good role all the time. And we rarely get what we're looking for. And uh, it takes a lot of perseverance and a thick skin mm. to make it work. Yeah, uh, that kind of leads into my next question, which was at, at this ABT program, you were dancing with like uh, Misty Copeland and like David Halberg and, and yourself, people who have become really well known in American ballet at this point. But I'm sort of curious, like what what is somebody like a, a Misty Copeland doing or a, a James Whiteside doing that's eventually elevating you above the level of a lot of other super good ballet dancers? I think uniqueness has a lot to do with what people gravitate toward. Huh. And uh, a cookie cutter ballet dancer doesn't really do it for a lot of people. They want more than just that. They want to know more about the person behind the ballet dancer. Huh. And uh, I have been really open about my interests and about my queerness and just being a sort of a free spirit in the ballet world, which is not really super popular to do. <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't have known that until I checked out this book because one of the terms you use is heteronormative to talk about the world of ballet, which I have to say came as a surprise to me. I know there are a lot of queer folks that take part in ballet. I thought it would, if there was a place that wouldn't be so heteronormative, it might be the world of ballet, but that hasn't been your experience. Well, I dance classical ballet, so I'm telling stories that are old. I'm telling Swan Lake stories. I'm doing, you know, Giselle and Romeo and Juliet, where I play a prince. In, in a lot of what I do. And, and the stories I tell are all straight stories. It just creates a really narrow range of type of person to be believable in these types of stories. And so it excludes a lot of people, in my opinion. And I understand it's very important to be true to the legacy of classical ballet. Um, you'd think it would be a whole lot gayer just considering who's interested in ballet and, you know, the people that gravitate toward ballet. Uh, but it's just not the case. Um, so I think it's time to uh, make it a little bit more, you know, friendly towards different types of people. Uh, this is Livewire. We're talking to James Whiteside about uh, his new book, Center Center, a funny, sexy, sad, almost memoir of a boy in ballet. Uh, I want to talk uh, when we come back from this break about some of your uh, other projects and uh, things that are not overly heteronormative, uh, <laughs> including You Who Betch, which might be the greatest name ever for a drag <laughs> character. Uh, so we're going to do that in just a moment with James Whiteside here on Livewire from PRX. Don't go anywhere. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke, I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. 
Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm-hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we... We are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, And, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to livewireradio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to Livewire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com slash livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com slash livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We're talking to James Whiteside. Uh, his new book is Center Center, a funny, sexy, sad, almost memoir of a boy in ballet. But you've also done a lot of other things, like you've recorded music under the name JB Dubs and have had some real success with that. Uh, you have a drag character, uh, Yuhu Betch. Uh, what was that a reaction to the the stuff that you were being kind of constricted by in the world of classical ballet? Yeah, I created my alter egos when I was in my early 20s. And it was a really organic uh, origin story for those two. And it was basically <laughs> just because I wasn't expressing myself in the way that I really wanted to within classical ballet. And I was working really hard trying to get the good parts and get promoted and all that good stuff. But I really wanted to have a little bit of fun on the side. So I uh, created JB Dubs and Yoohoo. So you were uh, inspired early on by uh, Fiona Apple and Missy Elliott. And and you put this album out. And then you had this big sort of viral hit, this song, I Hate My Job, which has been viewed millions and millions of times. It's been played in all these places. So that must have been really like exciting to feel like this is working. And then... Uh, there's a there's a, a term that you use in that song that's transphobic, and that then once the song got popular, then people started to point that out. What was that like for you as a queer person to 
you know, to find out that you had done something that had hurt people in that community? Oh gosh, I, I felt awful. I was ignorant and um, I'm grateful to have learned a lot from that whole experience. I was really proud of the thing I had made and then really ashamed at how insensitive and ignorant I had been. It was a pivotal point for me in, in my growth and I'm grateful for it. It's cool that it's in the book, you know, you're telling the story of your life as an aesthetic person and all of these triumphs, but also these other things that are attached to it. That's kind of a part of putting yourself out there in the world as somebody who grows and changes. Do you have other things that you want to do if there were further chapters? Well, yes, of course. I mean, and in writing the book, I wasn't interested in painting myself a hero. I wanted it to be a real introspective, frank look at who I am and what I've learned. Um, and as far as the future goes, I'm really fascinated by creation in general. So I would love to adapt essays from this book into film or television mm. or even a play. I'd love to create new stories in classical ballet centering on queerness and, and uh, just <laughs> updated versions of, of what we're getting at in, in classical ballet. Yeah, I just want to keep making things, essentially. Could you who ever make it onto the ABT stage? <laughs> I feel like you who probably already has. Ah. I, I definitely bring you who to a lot of my roles, whether whether people like it or not. <laughs> you know, you, you're, you're quite young as a human person, but I'm assuming 37 isn't a spring chicken in ballet years. So, yeah. so and so the body must be changing and reacting. Like what, uh, what keeps you going through the years with this art form? I mean, it's, it's a deep, very real passion that I have for the art form, deep respect I have for the art form and my own personal growth within it. Um, and simply put, I love dancing. I love live performance, the ephemeral art of live performance, sharing energy with a, a big audience. It's just outrageously incredible. And I've been able to make a job out of it. I am incredibly lucky. Okay. But on a more practical level, <laughs> I'm just wondering at 37, just physically, what does it feel like to be doing this incredibly athletically challenging stuff? Honestly, I feel really good. I, um, I actually used to be in a lot more pain when I was clawing my way up the ladder mm. and I would just ignore injuries left and right and just keep going, keep going, keep going. My workload was crazy. And now I am older. My schedule has evened out. I know almost all of the repertoire at ABT mm. and I can do it whenever you need me to pretty much. And, uh, I see myself doing classical ballet for as long as I can do it at a high level. So that's probably going to be another four years or so. And then dancing is something that I'm going to be doing until I'm in the grave. And I don't know what that means, if it's in uh, more contemporary work or Broadway or what. Mm -hmm. But I will be moving around until I can. Mm. James Whiteside's book is Center Center, a funny, sexy, sad, almost memoir of a boy in ballet. James, thank you so much for coming on Livewire. Thank you both so much. It's been such a pleasure chatting with y'all. Hey, special thanks this episode to Nathan Corser and Kristen Miner of Portland, Oregon. Nathan and Kristen are part of the Livewire member community 
and they're generously supporting our show with a donation each month, which is extremely helpful because without it and donations like that, we couldn't keep doing Livewire. So thank you this week to Nathan and Kristen for keeping Livewire going. This is Livewire. As we do each week, we ask the Livewire listeners a question. Since we're talking to such talented folks on the show this week, we ask the listeners, if you could snap your fingers and be instantly gifted at one skill, what would it be? Like if you're James Whiteside, it takes years and years and years to become the ballet dancer that he is. But what about just snapping your fingers and just having the talent? What did the listeners tell you, Elena, (laughs) they want to be instantly gifted at? Well, we had some repeats from Tracy and Anna. They both want to snap their fingers and have the same skill. Can you guess what the repeat is? Hmm. It's it's a skill, though. This is not like a superpower. We're not talking about in being invisible or flying. This is a thing that takes a lot of time to develop, but we want to get right to it. I don't know. Is it shredding on the electric guitar? No, but that's a good... I would pick that one. It's being able to speak every language. <gasps> Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is the one I would I would actually want to have as well. I mean, isn't it just when you're talking about, uh, you know, folks who have been raised in the U.S. speaking English as their first language, mm-hmm. like I'm thinking of the actor Bradley Cooper, when mm-hmm. those kinds of people effortlessly shift into another language, like he speaks fluent French as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, forget it. It, it really that is actually like more of a superpower than 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 a skill. It's just incredible to me. And I'm very envious. Yeah, no, it's true. It's really hard, too, when you're older, you know, to learn a new language. What I hear, though, from these, the polyglots in my life is Mm. that once you start learning, uh, you know, additional languages to the one that you sort of naturally speak, then it gets easier. I've never tested the theory because I've never (laughs) been able to master one language outside of English, but supposedly gets, you meet those people that speak like 11 languages. Yeah. Like, oh, I can, I mean, I can get around in Romanian, (laughs) you know, if I have to, like, what? All right. What's another talent that one of our listeners would like to just wake up with one day. Slightly less ambitious one from Phil, who wants the ability to tear paper cleanly on a perforation. (laughs) I have that exact problem in my kitchen right now. I have those paper towels that at some point the paper towel commission got together and said, let's put a new line of perforation that's midway through what mm-hmm. used to be the traditional size of a paper it. towel. Mm-hmm. It's a great, and you use less paper. It's great all the way around. But I'm always trying to rip it with one hand because I've created a situation with my other <laughs> hand. And I have it on this hanging rack, which is like the whole paper towel comes off. It's a very unsatisfying tear. You know what I mean? Like it's mm-hmm. just kind of not clean. So I'm with the listener. That would be an amazing power to have. Yeah. Uh, and then you could, uh, I don't know, like start like a paper tearing orchestra. Like with your beautiful <laughs> sounds. <laughs> I've seen somebody do that, a version of that. The band, The Arcade Fire. Mm. They were in, I believe it was France, and they were walking down uh, the hallway to go out to where their show was. They were being videotaped, and they started playing a song as they walked out, and their drummer was tearing a magazine in rhythm to create the rhythm section. You know, that is actually shredding. Yes, that's right. That's right. All right. One more talent that one of our listeners wishes they had at no actual expense to themselves. This is a two-word skill coveted by Jeff, and those two words are pie crusts. (laughs) That seems achievable. I hear they're hard to do. I mean, they're not easy, but I feel like if Jeff just spends some quality time with YouTube, 
I feel like uh, he can get there. <laughs> All right. We have, of course, a listener question for next week's show, which we're going to reveal at the end of this episode. So stick around for that. In the meantime, let's get our next guests on over here. Like so many of us, they had to figure out new ways to do their job when the pandemic hit. Uh, but unlike so many of us, their jobs are as actors and filmmakers. Natalie Morales and Mark Duplass co-wrote the new film Language Lessons. It's about a guy who is grieving a loss and then his relationship with his Spanish teacher, who he's only ever video chatted with. Um, they shot the film remotely doing their own hair and makeup via webcam over the course of four short weeks. The movie won the Audience Award at this year's South by Southwest Film Festival. And it's a really incredible accomplishment, especially when you factor in the unusual circumstances of how it was made. Natalie Morales and Mark Duplass, welcome to Livewire. Thank you. Thank you. Um, this film grew out of a real thing that happened to you, Mark, a conversation that you were having um, in Spanish remotely. Sort of. Yeah, I was uh, about two months into the pandemic and I was uh, experiencing that sort of early boredom and restlessness. Um, and I was starting to pick up those oddball hobbies that we were doing at the time, um, which for me was not bread making, but it was taking online Spanish lessons. Um, and I noticed an interesting dynamic started to develop with my teacher, which is that we were supposed to be taking conversational lessons, but neither of us were particularly good at or interested in small talk. Hmm. And um, what we were left with was just kind of going deep quickly, even though we didn't know each other that well. Um, and I thought that was really interesting because, you know, this sort of um, two dimensional FaceTime video chat interface, which is supposed to inhibit connection, was actually facilitating it um, and taking us downstream faster than normal. And so with that idea in mind, I thought, well, this is a movie we could make during the pandemic, during lockdown. I'll stay in my house and whoever I'm with could stay in their house and we could just make up a new filming system and do it. Um, I know that the, those initial conversations that you were having, Mark, with this uh, Spanish instructor were uh, some of it revolved around the, the death of Lynn Shelton, the great filmmaker um, and friend of yours and Natalie's and, uh, you know, friend of our show. Actually, she was on a lot as a guest. Um how much did that inform this movie, which also deals with death? Yeah. So there's an element of, of grief in this movie. And there's uh, I think the most important uh, way that applies to the film really is, you know, sometimes you meet someone um, and your relationship takes a nice organic pace, you know, you plot along and everybody kind of leans in emotionally when they're ready. And sometimes you meet someone and a calamitous event occurs um, that takes you way further into your intimacy than you are prepared for. Um, and we love the idea that Adam and Carino um, are thrust into a situation that they're not really prepared to handle and they're not really good at handling um, due to this sort of external event. And that, that is definitely something that Natalie and I were both having some experience with, you know, at the, at the time in our lives. Natalie, I, you know, when this movie starts, I think a lot of other folks writing this movie and you and Mark co-wrote this, this would have been a romantic love story, but this doesn't follow that because uh, Adam's character is gay. Carino is uh, presumably straight, I guess. Why did you decide to, to not have it be sort of the traditional romance thing? That was actually Mark's idea um, from the very beginning. Uh, and, and I think he was right in, in making um, Adam gay. It sort of took that off the table and 
it made you sort of not concentrate on the will they won't they-ness of all the movies that we've seen prior mm -hmm. and and concentrate on these two people who um who have a, a budding relationship that is platonic um and how interesting that can actually be uh that that was intentional from the beginning what what was surprising to us uh after we finished it was that we realized that there aren't many movies like this um, yeah that do that we I, I don't i don't think we thought about it in that way because i think both mark and i not only with each other but with uh with other people in our lives have these deep and interesting and and often dramatic uh you know friendships and and platonic relationships that are just as enriching and just as as worthy of exploring as uh, as a romantic relationship might be and and i think i'm glad that it turned out that way and that i'm glad that we made that decision even though we didn't really uh, think about it in those terms and only noticed it afterwards you two were kind of friends before this you'd worked on projects together but did you feel like people talk about an onset romance or people you know get really close when they're in movies did you feel your friendship actually like evolving and growing as you're shooting this, as you're acting and pretending to be friends in the film? A hundred percent. And and that was something I was really, just to be totally honest, hoping would happen. And it's part of my desire and wanting to make art. It's a great way to connect with people. And, and I think one of the reasons why I'm so interested in the platonic relationship that's at the core of this film is that I have been with my wife for 20 years um, and the romantic pursuit of my life is done and it's wonderful. So the way for me to get giddy and find the new energy and to find the falling in love way is through my platonic relationships. And that lights me up in this really wonderful way. And so I wanted to not only be able to explore that on screen, but I knew that Natalie and I, we knew each other well enough to know that we would like really get along creatively and probably make something really interesting um, hopefully interesting. Um, but most importantly, we would have great chemistry and have a blast along the way trying to figure out how to make a movie during this pandemic. And the older I get, like to me, that's 50% or more of it. Did you know that was the plan going in Natalie, Mark, just trying to ratchet up the friendship? <laughs> um, uh, you know, I don't know that You're I filming knew. this camera. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Oh, I'm sorry. We didn't record any of that uh, for the last yeah. four weeks. I, I didn't know that that was his plan, although it was my plan. Um, so I had known Mark just a little bit socially. And I and I think we were the kinds of friends who at that point could call each other up if we had a project. But we weren't really close, although uh, I I did I did go to one of his birthday parties and, and I and, and there is Mark is very um, Mark is very easy to love, which is why a lot of people love him. And and he's he's someone that you want to be close to, not only because he's interesting, um, but because he's smart and he 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 has a lot to say about the world and people and and he pays attention and he also wants to listen to you and get to know you and 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 he's a person that that I think I mean rightfully so people are attracted to because of that sense and in all senses of the word. And so actually getting to work with him on a day-to-day -day basis on something. And so it was really exciting for me, not only on a work or creative basis, but also on a personal basis as well. Uh, that's Natalie Morales. Uh, we're also talking to Mark Duplass here on Livewire about their new film, Language Lessons. Natalie, how did it get decided that you were going to direct this? 
to be very, very honest, the DGA is uh, uh, not the super, Directors Guild of America. Yeah, they're not super psyched about co-directors uh, for a lot of reasons. <laughs> um, and and Mark and I really, really did work on this movie together. Um, although I did spearhead all of the post part of the of the project, and so I, I definitely took on the directing in that in that sense. But it would have been impossible to make just with a sole director, especially while filming it in completely different places, and 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 also while acting in it. I think that when you act in something that you're also directing, you you need collaborators around you to uh, tell you if you sucked or not, you know, and that's and, what I've always wondered when someone yeah. is directing a film, and they're also one of the stars of a film is like, when do you know that you need another take because you're allegedly yeah. the director? Yeah, I mean, there's playback, but that wastes a lot of time, um, precious time when you're shooting. And so Sometimes you have the wherewithal, although you have to try to not direct while you're in a scene and you have to try to not have that part of your brain be the part that's working, mm. you can't help it. And, and I could kind of tell, especially via Zoom, wa literally watching myself, I could kind of tell if a scene, as long as far as I was concerned, which is the part that you're the most disconnected from, uh, went the way that we wanted it to go. But um, but I, I needed Mark and you, and you need collaborators to guide you into go like, why don't you try this? Or why don't you do this? You know, because it is too many hats to wear at once, especially in like a very quick gorilla type production. Um, a lot of this uh, film is in Spanish. And uh, I know you were taking some Spanish lessons uh, in the pandemic, Mark, but how uh, proficient were you at Spanish before this film got started? I speak about 75% as well as my character Adam does. So I see. I had to I had to push and kind of brush up uh, like I studied in high school and a little bit in college and try to keep it up. Um, but I definitely had to ramp up a little bit and Natalie helped me with some stuff. And but we also liked the idea that he would be struggling to find his words, that that was part of the character. So it gave me the comfort to kind of fall and, and ask for words from her because that was their inherent dynamic. Um, so, I, yeah, I wasn't too worried about what my shortcomings were with the actual Spanish because they could be endemic with the character. Um, mm -hmm. And that is all part and parcel with this process and making a movie like this, which is from the moment I called Natalie to the moment we wrapped was four weeks. I mean, we just blazed through. And so what you do when you make a movie like this is you accept that there are limits, you accept that it's gonna be ragged, it's gonna be haphazard. If one thing is working for you, you don't stop and think, what are the other few things that could work for me? You take that thing and you just go. You're just like a, just like a rabid little kid. And I love making movies like that because what you what you might lose in preparation, um, you gain in spontaneity and that spirit of fun while you're doing it. And those are the kind of pieces of art that I think make you live longer, at least for me. Yeah. Natalie, uh, Spanish is actually your first language. Uh, your parents came uh, to Florida from Cuba. Yeah, my, my whole family are uh, Cuban refugees, so I was um, first born in Miami, but my grandparents uh, didn't know how to speak English, so they raised me really um, while my mom was at work, so I, my first language was Spanish, but I, I did spend so much of my life not trying to forget Spanish, but trying to not make that the thing that was uh, defining in me, mm -hmm. especially in, in this business. Right. It used to be that I, I felt very self-conscious of being like too Latina because I knew that that would risk job opportunities for me and that I had to 
sort of assimilate more in order to be accepted more and in order to to succeed in in any business and and that was a that wasn't even a conscious thing really that was just so so deeply rooted in in the immigrant American experience, um, even in a place like Miami, which is mostly Latin, you know, mm -hmm. but like, I never wanted to give them a reason to not give me that job, despite what my skin tone was and what my face looked like. And, and only in the last year and only while doing this movie did I realize that a certain amount of code switching that I had mm -hmm. done my whole life um, was damaging to me in some way hmm. and speaking in Spanish in a movie and, and getting to do that not only was special because uh, I felt it very, very close to my heart, but also because my family that doesn't speak English can watch a movie that I make and understand it and not have to watch it dubbed with someone else's voice or with subtitles necessarily, you know? And um, I'm not scared of this movie making me seem too Latina. There was a time where I didn't wear the color red um, to any auditions or anything like that because wow. I, I knew that that made me look more Latin. And I, and I was like, no hoop earrings, no uh, red. And, and now I don't feel that way anymore. I don't know if it's because the industry has changed or because I just don't care anymore. And I, and I, I have changed. I think something about 2020 changed all of us. Yeah. Um, it certainly had, you know, made me have less patience for the non-important things. And, uh, and this seemed to be very essential, not only to who I am, but who I am in the world. Uh, I, I really enjoyed this film and I felt at the end, like I wanted to know what happens next for these characters. Um, <laughs> do they make sequels of indie films? Is that a thing? <laughs> You you can make them. No one comes, <laughs> but you can make you can make them. <laughs> I mean, it was just like it seemed like a perfect chapter one to me yes, of this uh, kind of cool friendship yeah. between these two people. Uh, Natalie Morales and Mark Duplass. The new film is Language Lessons. Thank you so much for uh, coming on Livewire. Thank you, Luke. This was wonderful. Thanks. Thanks so much, Luke. Appreciate it. That was Natalie Morales and Mark Duplass right here on Livewire, their film, Language Lessons, is in theaters right now. All right, our musical guest this hour has been hailed by The New Yorker as one of America's very best singer-songwriters. She's sold millions of albums. She's also the author of a number of books, including What I Found in a Thousand Towns. Dar Williams, welcome to Livewire. Thank you. One of the things that you've been known for, along with your music and your writing, is your environmental activism. And it really feels like looking around, we're seeing the evidence of how we've mistreated the environment. For somebody like you that's been sounding the alarm on it for a long time, is it just depressing or is there a certain sense of like, look, I told you so, I wasn't crazy? Like, what's it, what's it feel like for you to watch all this? <laughs> I'm pretty chill. I mean, you know, if you learned about this stuff in 1988, you've got a lot of time to, you know, rise and fall with it and... Um, it is exactly what was predicted. And um, at the same time, you know, I remember in the 90s having this awareness of what was going on on the planet and like seeing all these SUVs coming out and people getting really excited, like, look how big my car can mm -hmm. be. And I was like, no, that's not the direction, you know. So I was watching us kind of go into this hybrid mode where a lot of people knew what was going on and then other people were like, look, I got a bigger house. And so... Um, you know, I feel like right now people are doing a lot more, have a lot more awareness of like how to really make the best of time and space in a way that is 
thinking about the planet. Like I, I, I see a shift in the mainstream. So I'm actually really happy about that. And also I did this green blog for um, uh, Huffington Post a while mm-hmm. ago, and I would t- call the guys from the Renewable Energy Lab, which apparently you can do as a cold call. <laughs> 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 or they'd heard of me, I don't know. But they said, the guy I spoke to on a regular basis said that we could be, you know, 98 to 99% renewable everywhere based on all the resources and technologies and research that they'd done, you know, by now. So it's just a matter of, of time and will. And I see people adopting that. So actually, I feel like we are in a in an incredible position right now to address it, much more so than I thought 10 or 20 years ago. I am very happy to hear that because I feel like we've been on a real run lately where all of the news is so kind of depressing and dispiriting. Yeah. And it just feels like, are we ever going to be able to fix the problems that we've created in this world? I know that you have a song on this new album, uh, that uh, today and every day that's kind of described as as optimistic I would read one review yeah. I mean is that what makes you optimistic this idea that that we actually have the ability to change our our future if we choose to Yeah I know the people I mean a lot of people in my audiences and and in my sort of friend circle uh they just wake up every morning um my friend Jenny said that you know she just wakes up she's part of an arts organization she said I wake up and say how much can I do with how much less? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but I feel like people are doing this creatively, less less like martyrs. But I see people figuring out ways to sort of joyfully feel like they're a part of something and therefore want to be part of a movement or friendship circle doing good stuff. You know, so I just see people kind of doing it as part of their identity. Um, and I wrote this book that's called What I Found in a Thousand Towns. And it's basically like, there are these towns that have what I call positive proximity, which means they wake up in the morning and they know that living even cheek by jowl with other people is a good thing. Even if they annoy you and even if you <laughs> sometimes don't respect them or agree with them, you find a way to to live together and you're mm. proud of yourself and you know that the world is better because you have chosen to live amongst other people and not be a hermit, you know? Like that's the way things go. So towns that have a high social trust and positive proximity tend to say things like, how are we going to collectively do these things for the environment, for social justice? And and I encountered, obviously, a lot of towns with that high social trust, positive proximity, and got to see all the good news. So I wrote about that, <laughs> and I got a book contract. That's one of the best book titles I've ever seen. What I Found in a Thousand Towns, A Traveling Musician's Guide to Rebuilding America's Communities, One Coffee Shop, Dog Run, and Open Mic Night at a Time. <laughs> Pithy, huh? Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Live Wire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello, and we are talking to Dar Williams. Uh, her new album is I'll Meet You Here. Uh, we got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because when we get back, we are going to hear a song from Dar. So stay with us. Live Wire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal T this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest, and they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co.
Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello and Dar Williams. Um, Dar, before the break, we were chatting about your book, What I Found in a Thousand Towns. Um, but you also wrote another book called Writing a Song That Matters, um, which kind of grew out of this um, songwriting retreat that uh, that you've been teaching, I think, for about 10 years now. I mean, is that what you are teaching students when they show up, uh, how to write a song that matters? Okay, not to sound like a groovy, passive-aggressive professor, but we, we call it leading, Luke. Okay. <laughs> leading. I, excuse we, we me. We lead a group. Elena is also a professor, so I should, uh, I should yeah. know this. I don't lead, no, though. I just sort of stumble behind. And hope <laughs> oh, I know that feeling, too. So I have this belief. You know, we, we get a lot of people who haven't written a song in 10 or 20 years because they raised kids, mm-hmm. and they assume that something just disappeared, and they, they feel like this, the, the faintest ember is still there. Mm. So we're there to let them know that we're going to, bring that back to the bonfire. And we have people who um, went to professional music schools who were told that they just weren't quite good enough mm-hmm. and um, kind of dropped out of music altogether. And, and you know, there are a lot of tears, you know, with those folks coming back into believing in themselves musically. Um, and we have poets. And then we have professional artists who kind of feel like they've lost their, you know, their essence, <laughs> mm-hmm. like the, the kind of why, the why of what they're doing. So uh, I believe that what happens is we get these little things in our heads and we have to figure out like that little moment when you go, oh my gosh, it's a song. It's a song. Like how do we nurture, how do we fan the spark, bring it into kind of being, and then what do we pay attention to, to turn it into the song that matters to us, you know? Mm. And there's certain questions that you ask yourself like, okay, where did I go? Okay, this is somehow happening on the moon. Let's go to the moon. Let's look at pictures of the moon and kind Mm -hmm. of go to the moon and see what happens, see what's there, see how it feels, gather up that language, see what rhymes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, kind of like go to that place as much as possible and and then develop what you can within those feelings that you're having as you as you're feeling and building that spark. So that's not a teaching thing. That's a that's a leading thing. Well, speaking of songs, uh, we're going to hear a song off of this new album, I'll Meet You Here. What uh, what are you going to play? So this is called Time Be My Friend. All right. This is Dar Williams on Livewire. so kind to you always asked where you were going though you had no way of knowing no no time i have not been kind to you time meet me here i meet you here and we'll go walking for a little while and i know what i will say no, there's only now and yesterday Oh, time, i meet you here Cause when I thought that I was alone You snapped your fingers and a tree came into bloom And the sun came by to fill my room Oh, time Has not happened yet. You will never. 
But I can get just what I get And you will never say you love me You will never say you love me But I can love just what I get I will be your best receiver, your golden inst retriever. I'll remember what you taught me and those treasures that you brought me. Most of all, a lifetime of friends. We came together when I asked you to be one of them. Oh, time. When I thought that I was alone You snapped your fingers and a tree came into bloom And the sun came by to fill my room Oh, time You will never tell me something that has not happened yet You will never make a promise But I can get just what I get you will never say you love me You will never say you love me You will never say you love me But let's see what's round the bend Livewire, that was awesome. Oh, woo, thank, you. thank you so much. I think Goldenest Retriever is like my new favorite song lyric. I <laughs> uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dar, thank you so much for coming on Livewire. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. That was Dar Williams Woo-hoo! right here on Livewire. Wow, that was really cool. Uh, Dar's new album, I'll Meet You Here, is out October 1st. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's show. We are going to have Mary Norris stopping by. Uh, She is an author and also a famous copy editor for The New Yorker. Yes, famous copy editor. That is a thing, and Mary Norris is it. Uh, She's also known as the comma queen. We're also going to talk to actor and writer Ryan O'Connell from the Netflix series Special. And we're going to have music from Dirty Revival. And as always, we'll be looking to get your answers to our listener question. Elena, what is the question for the listeners next week? What is your favorite word and why? Huh. I'm going to have to spend the whole week thinking about my answer to that question. I already know my answer. All right. Well, you tell us next week. And if you, as a Livewire listener, want to give us your response to that, go ahead and hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. We are at Livewire Radio. All right, that is going to do it for this episode of the show. A huge thanks to our guests, Natalie Morales, Mark Duplass, James Whiteside, and Dar Williams. Boy, that was a lot of show. <laughs> Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sepchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And Paige Thomas is our social media manager. Our music is composed by A. Walker Spring. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. 
Additional funding provided by the Oregon Cultural Trust and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Nathan Corser and Kristen Miner of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire team. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.